welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is the podcast audio version of our regular Sunday Science Shambles Q&A show, which is streamed live at 3pm British summertime every Sunday on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles. So obviously since this was uh, initially a live stream, there might be a couple of visual elements that don't translate as well to the audio version on the podcast and there might be the one or two technical hitches, such as the uh, joy of doing live stream shows over the internet uh, when everyone's stuck at home. And remember, you can support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. If you head there and subscribe, uh, not only do you get lots of goodies, extra shows, bonus live streams and all that sort of stuff, uh, that's that support is what enables us to keep making these podcasts and the live streams and everything else uh, while we can't be out doing live shows like we normally would be. And check out all the other great science and culture content we've got going on at cosmicshambles.com. There's the new uh, exclusive documentary series we made with the European Space Agency with Helen Chersky and Ginny Smith and Tim Peake and others. Lots of other live streams, blogs, podcasts, and plenty of things to keep you occupied. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone, how are you? Oh good. Well, that's not no it is, you're right. It has been very hot today, hasn't it? They say one of the hottest of the year. But anyway, that's enough of that. Now it's time to move on to science. This is our regular Sunday science QA. Uh and uh today sometimes we have kind of specific themes, but today it's kind of a, a little bit more of a hodgepodge, which is more fun for me because it means that I undoubtedly always go to the wrong person first, who then says, I think you'll find Brenner is probably better. I think you'll find Helen, I think you'll find John, etc. So a lot of that's gonna happen. Um, that is, uh, today we have, uh, author and, uh, one of the trailblazer, uh, pioneers, Brenna Hassett. Uh, we have, uh, the man who did a wonderful link up live with, uh, CERN some time ago. Oh, by the way, just here's my show and tell. I don't know if you can see my show and tell. There, that's my show and tell. The uh, not mine, but uh, nevertheless, something of a camera hog. So obviously, by nurture, not nature, that that dog's picked that up for me in the last two weeks. Um, but uh, we also got John Butterworth, who there was a wonderful time where uh, John Butterworth is, uh, I think, still. Um, are, you, are you back at UCL, John? Well, I'm in Kentish Town, actually, but yes, UCL technically. Oh my god! Oh my god! That show tells me, by the way, by the way, and it smells. I am going to have to change what it eats. Uh, it's one of the lucky things, actually. I have I have a nice life of mixing with a lot of different people, and I've I just received a, an email from an astronaut telling me about how much their dog is breaking wind at the moment as well. So uh, there's something going around. Um, but uh, yes, John, John, uh, who's who's written two fantastic books about uh, helping us understand uh, the uh, uh, the laws of the universe in particular also the Large Hadron Collider, and obviously we're joined, as usual, by Helen Chesky as well. Um, how are you, Helen? I am doing very well. Warm, as like everyone else, but uh, else, but uh, yeah, enjoy. I'm all, I'm forever too cold, so I never complain when it's warm. So I, in the middle of winter, then I, I'm just the one in the corner who's like, but I'm cold all the time. But um, this this is brilliant. I can live in this weather. And I have I have a show and tell which is ice based because I thought that that would cheer everyone up. Just the reminder that ice exists. Um, but I don't know what it. The problem is none of us know what it is. So it's um, this is a picture that hangs on my wall. There, there's lots of them. They're all sort of quite similar. And this is the picture of the inside of an ice flow 
from the North Pole. And each one of these is about um, five millimetres long and that they're little holes in the ice. So we're looking through clear ice and inside the ice, there's these little spherical holes, but they've all got a little pointy bit out the top. And um, a friend of mine, Mario Hopman, took this picture um, in this beautiful ice. And we all agreed that they were very pretty. And then we also all agreed that nobody had any idea what they were doing there. Um, so if there are any ice scientists out there, then this is quite nice. But I keep it on my wall because I quite like not knowing what it is. And I quite like that the fluid dynamics of it, because ice is really complicated stuff. You know, it sort of um, it doesn't stay put when it freezes. If there's pressure and as thing, you know, as, as the stresses on it change, it kind of it doesn't quite melt, but the molecules move around. So it changes shape. And I think this is a result of that process that it froze once. And then whatever happened to the, as the temperature cycled up and down a little bit, water molecules moved around and they formed these little holes. So they're like um, inverse Christmas tree baubles. You know, the, that's an absence and not a presence. So I just think they're quite pretty. So I thought I would show that to everyone because um, it's quite nice. Mysteries that are still out there. Um, and of course, the, that ice will have melted now. So maybe we'll never find out what it was. And of course, there's also that everyone there should be criticism by uh, physicists. Let's have a look at the way that Magritte has used the fluid dynamics to create the surreal image of the man. Um, I will quickly, before we do the show and tells with Brenna and John, I will mention that uh, this week we have on our show and tell Jay Wilgoose from the fantastic public service broadcasting, um, who uh, one of my favourite bands. And if any of you were able to come to, uh, I think it was three years ago when uh, one of our compendium of reasons at uh, Hammersmith, which currently is still meant to be happening in in december i i have no idea i don't think we're putting any more tickets on sale uh for the time being but uh, it's still officially happening but we had them on they opened the show and duran duran closed it and it was a lot of fun and uh, jay wilgoose is uh, going to be talking about well some of the things that uh, he has collected and uh, particularly excite him and interest him and of course if you know the music and you know the the, the broad different ideas that they've dealt with from kind of you know the the, the manufacturer spits spitfire to the apollo missions to uh mining communities in wales as well it's an incredible uh, album that with some really brilliant sampling as well uh, then you know it will be uh, quite a, a delight i think and uh, also we have the new genetic shambles podcast which will go up on uh, wednesday night we've had a lot of interesting conversations we uh, uh over this week with geneticists uh, covering a huge amount of ground of both the future and the past and somewhere in the middle ground of, uh, of, of the now as well. And uh, next Sunday's show, I should also tell you, is Jen Gupta and uh, Katie Mack. You may well have seen Katie before. Here's a nice spread, actually, uh, about her in The Observer today, her excellent book, uh, all about the different ways that the, uh, the universe may well come to an end. It's a very uh, upbeat uh, conclusion to the universe with some really quite uh, absurd, uh, but apparently, uh, equation-based uh, possibilities as well um and i'll also mention our tip jar we have a, a tip jar at the uh, at the bottom somewhere on your screen if you're able to leave a tip for uh this show uh, that is fantastic and uh, if you are able to actually donate to cosmic shambles uh, patreon um that makes a huge difference we very much kind of hit a plateau with that we are very aware that of course at the moment there are an enormous number of people creating stuff online and uh asking for your money but many of them will not use it wisely whereas use it to improve human civilization and our understanding of it but yeah we, we're still making about you know three four five sometimes six shows a week and uh, we're making them on uh, on next to nothing and of course a lot of people kind of involved in uh, our projects have no other work at the moment as well um because uh well i don't know if you 
most things are closed uh, for for the performer at the moment. So um, let's get started. I, I, I will uh, talk about your books later on. And also, I just realised, Robin, that I should apologise because I did a very scientist thing there, which is that you said hello, no. how, which is that you said hello, how are you? And I went, oh, science. No, 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 that was absolutely... Uh, that maybe wasn't what you were expecting. <laughs> show and tell, which is I just found on my 21st birthday, someone who's particularly tight gave me this cassette of Tom Jones. There we are. It's, uh, it's one of those ones that says it's not unusual, but then the rest of it is very much not the ones you'd choose. One ninety nine, Woolworths, thank you, whoever that was. Uh, Have you ever taken it out of the box? That could be a valuable... If you've never touched it, that could be a valuable... It, that could be a valuable artifact now if it's un, you know pristine condition classic contour label uh there's the uh if you're wondering what was on the uh the spread there inside there we are that is it draw on it which what you uh it does have with these hands which of course is very well used in the uh the movie edward scissorhands so brenna what is your show and tell i'm expecting something exciting from from your show and tell because you are whereas with john i'm always worried because he's not allowed to take a lot of his work home with him um you hopefully are allowed sometimes to take some of your work home with you. we do we do, we, we do actually have pretty strict rules about uh taking dead people home with us um there there are um for a number of probably quite good reasons um you know fear of instant resurrection zombie apocalypse etc but also you know like ethics and stuff uh, plus you've stolen my thunder with your archaeological artifact um, but I thought, you know, given given that um, I believe you've been having some some dental issues, mm. and it it turns out that I actually have a PhD in dental anthropology, which is a real degree that you can get if you don't do anything else worthwhile with your life. Um, so I thought I would bring you some plague teeth. Oh, great! I mean, this, that's that's really that's what we want to know about, right? Is is teeth? So, um, so Robin, I think you you've got basically a tooth that is decided to self destruct. Is is yeah, this what I, I understand? I, I, you know, it, it's kind of a homeopathic tooth. It's a tooth with a memory of a tooth, which is kind of trying to rely on that memory to create some kind of integrity of structure, and it's failing. So it turns out you you are actually entirely right about the memory thing, because of course, uh, my entire goal in this life is to convince everyone that your teeth are fossils that are inside your head. Because your teeth grow once, one time. That's it. Um, your your tooth has not spontaneously regenerated. No, I don't but, think so. No, no. And um, you know, I, I gotta say, it won't. I'm very sorry. Um, but so, like, you know, if you think about limbs, if you've ever broken a bone, most people have at some point had the joyous experience of you know snapping an ulna or two. Um, but they they fix, right? They knit. Because your bone is a living tissue that sort of constantly regenerates. Basically, depending on which bit of bone, um, there's really no part of it that's older than about 11 years. That's how fast the turnover is. So if you're knitting back bones, great. However, if your real interest is to find out what happened to those bones through life, then remodeling sucks. So if you are like me and you just wish to dig up a dead person and have an intact record of everything they've done in their life, what you actually want is teeth. Teeth grow once, you chip them, you rot them, and they are gone. But the nice thing is they grow nice and regular and they basically form a fossil. So they capture every little bit of everything that went into them while you were growing them. So everything you fed your kids, everything you were fed as a kid, is locked into your teeth from basically from about 20 weeks pregnant 
onwards, um, you know, so starting inside the womb, you have a beautiful little chemical and physical track record of every bit of your growth, which of course you have now ruined, which is you know, <laughs> unfortunate for future scientists. But um, well, presumably not though, because presumably, I, so I don't know about Robin's tooth, but one thing that one people, thing that people happens to people in dentists sometimes is that they have their teeth taken out and then they can look at them. Presumably yes. that means you can read your record while you're still alive. Yes. So um, again, the, the ethics issues, it turns out that there are laws about experimenting on yourself that actually apply to whether or not it's legal to donate your own tissue or those of your children. Um, so like the project I work on has to have very serious medical ethical clearance. Um, it is called the Tooth Fairy Project. And I feel like some children were possibly misled. So let's have a look. Let's have a look at these plague teeth of yours. Right. Though. Well, so so what we actually have is the ghost of plague teeth. This is um, so Liverpool Street Station, 1985, massive construction site. Do you know what's under Liverpool Street Station? Teeth. Dead people with their teeth. Massive, massive plague pits. Turns out plague is kind of a human thing. Like we do it a lot. Turns out if you're going to move all those people together and maybe not make some of them as healthy as other people, uh, you're going to have a plague. And um, Liverpool Street Station, when they dug it up, they started finding like thousands and thousands and thousands of bodies. There were bodies everywhere. And apparently, um, you know, every time they dug up, it used to be Broad Street Station, then it was Liverpool. Every time they dug up, try to move a road, try to put something else in, there would just be piles and piles of bodies. Turns out a lot of these were basically plague pits. Um, and what, what we want to know about plagues in the past, and this is someone um, called uh, DeWitt who's done a lot of work on this, is very cool. But basically, we want to know what makes you die in a plague? Why me? Is kind of the scientific question there. And one of the things we can ask is if we look at all of the teeth that recorded all of the stuff from when you were growing up, what you were eating, how fast you were growing, how healthy you were, if we look at those teeth, and uh, we look at them and say, oh, some of these teeth look like they belong to kids who really had sucky lives. And we look at the dead people in the pits, we can ask, did having a sucky early life lead you to die in a plague pit? Mm. So we take little tiny casts of the little tiny teeth and we actually use them to look at every single time a kid in the past stopped growing because your teeth are a fossil, right? So they're growing, growing, growing. Something shuts down your body, fever, malnutrition, particularly scary dream, we don't really know. Um, it leaves a line in the tooth. If I take a cast of your tooth using an exciting series of dental molds, uh, I can actually use a microscope to look at those lines, figure out if you had a sucky childhood, and then look at your body in a plague pit and say, oh, well, that kind of predisposed you to dying in a pandemic, didn't it? So what I have here is actually the green gooey mold, which is where we would pour in an epoxy to make a beautiful cast of these teeth. And then this is where it gets really exciting. We would coat it in gold. That's and just this, showing off. It is also, you know what you can't see? is a uh, clear epoxy that, that is really difficult to see um so this is our shiny shiny gold tooth i'm hoping it shows up yeah it does and on that shiny shiny gold tooth 
there are lots and lots of little tiny lines where there's a big fat line, that's where growth sucked, that's where growth stopped. And so it's my job to count that up under either an SEM or another high powered microscope in order to tell you that yes, having a sucky childhood predisposes you to dying of plague. Brilliant. That is a very upbeat uh, start. Um, uh, and the I rather like the, the mould that you used there as well. The green had a, a look as if it was a scale model. Of, I can't remember if they were selenites or not from uh, Hobbs End Station at Quatermass and the Pit. So it has a kind of still, uh, for those of you who have the, probably the best in the uh, Quatermass Hammer series. John, two questions. Is your show and tell a cat? No, it's not. Why? No, it's not. Why do you, why, why do you, do you have ask? a cat? I was trying to work out if someone has a cat. I can hear the sound of a cat, but I might have cat tinnitus. Uh, I can't hear. I, I that might get... be my fan. Oh, it's, there's, there's an element of the sound of a kind of a, a snoring creature, but it's not you, John. That's good. Um, so, John, what is your show and tell today? What is your show and tell today? Okay. Um, yeah, so no teeth, I'm afraid. It's this. So this is a, um, a little model, a scale model, of um, a, a dipole magnet from the Large Hadron Collider because, you know, I'm a bit of a one-trick guy, you know, that's what I do for the Large Hadron Collider. It's a good trick, though. As seven kilometres, you know, the, the length of the circle line kind of, uh, you know, colliders go. Yeah. I feel if you're going to have one trick, pick an enormous collider as your enormous trick. Enormous collider as your trick. Right. I sometimes feel I'm milking it a bit, but fine, good. I'm glad you like it. Um, there's a, the, so this is what this is. It's, it's merchandise, right? So, but, but I don't feel bad about it because CERN is not allowed to sell this stuff online. So if you go to visit CERN, you might be able to buy this in the shop, but it's not, they're, not in, they're not allowed by treaty to make a profit out of it. So I'm not really doing anything corrupt here. But it's a phone charger. You see it's got a little USB things. And it, it, has, um, it, can, it, has, it stores 1% of the energy that one of the real dipoles will store. So that's that. But the, the thing I'd also like to say, show about it is if you look at the end of it, it's kind of structurally true. So there's a little kind of two, you see, it's not just like one hole through the middle where the beam, this is where the beam goes. It's one of the, the real thing bends the, the proton beam in the Large Hadron Collider, makes it go around the corner, okay? So it's really powerful. There's a figure eight in there, and there's a story behind the figure eight that I'd like to tell you, this little double-centered double thing, right? So when they, were, when they were building, planning to build the, the tunnel, that the Large Hadron Collider is now in. They actually built it for a machine called the, the Large Electron Positron Collider, LEP, which ran in, in from 1990 to 2000. Same tunnel, 27 kilometers, huge tunnel. But they had in their head that we would probably like, after we've done that experiment, to put protons in the same tunnel. And the people who built the magnets at the time said, well, you need to build a tunnel bigger. Then instead of it being sort of like the, the, the northern line, it has to be more like the circle line. It has to have a bigger bore, this tunnel because otherwise we won't be able to fit the magnet in for the protons. You can build the, le the le le needed less powerful magnets, and that's why it was easy to do that first. So they said, so, but you can imagine, 27 kilometers of tunnel, if you want to build the tunnel one and a half times the diameter of the tunnel, that's a lot of money. That's a serious investment, right? So they argued about this a lot. They said, we could build a tunnel and it'll be useless in 10 years, or we could build a tunnel that'll keep us going for decades, but it'll cost four times as much or something. So what are we going to do? And they compromised, in typical um, CERN compromise. They said, we'll build it a bit bigger, and then you guys have got to work out a way to make the proton magnets smaller. So instead of having two completely separate beams, one for the proton one way and one going the other way, you have to integrate the magnets. And that's what that figure eight is. 
So one of the protons goes in one of the holes of the eight, and the other goes in the other hole of the eight, and the whole magnetic field polarity is set up so that you have the right sign of field bending one going one way, and the right sign of field bending the other going the other way, and that meant they could fit it all in a tunnel that was not much bigger than they needed anyway for LEP. So it was affordable and justifiable, and that's why we have the Large Hadron Collider in there today, rather than needing a completely new tunnel to build it. So I, I really like the long-term, this was in the 80s, right, they were doing this, and they didn't know how to build the magnets then. They were just saying, we reckon by the, by the time you start building the LHC, you'll have sussed this out, guys, go away and work on it. And meanwhile, we'll did the tunnel. So having just been involved in a two-and-a-half-year European strategy for particle physics process with the kind of talking about what might happen in decades in the future, I really like the example that it can actually work. It's like these people building, you know, whoever planted out carefully for my grandchildren. It feels a bit like that in particle physics sometimes, but that's what you do. That's so what I like. I mean, I, I see it very much as the Brookside close of particle physics. You know, it's not merely a film set. Film set. It's also, also going to be eventually, eventually available, available for housing, housing as well. As well. So we, we have very, you know, you, know, Ken, you, would, Ken you would always go always and see the live, live opera. opera. Me, me always, always being lured, lured by, by uh, Merseyside to the 1980s. Right, we have an enormous number of questions. And just a reminder... Well, I'll mention as well, in fact, uh, uh, your, your books. Uh, your most recent book, I think, is Map of the Invisible, John, isn't it? That's correct. Uh, and, Brenna, I think your most recent book is Built on Bones. Uh, it I is. I hope that is correct. And uh, Helen has joined that wonderful group of people who've made rather beautiful ladybird books as well, uh, of various different scientific ideas. And she has a ladybird book as well, all about bubbles. So there we go. That's uh, that's your uh, crass commercialism over and done with. We will attempt some crass commercialism again in about 20 minutes. Um, so we're going to start off with... Uh, Daryl Easterly, right? He's got a morbid question. But if future civilizations dig us up in 200 years, does Brenner think we'll be able to tell if the bones were of a person who had COVID-19 in the same way as talking about plague? And that's a kind of just build up from what you've been talking about. about. So um, bioarchaeologists hate plague. I mean, for all the normal reasons. Um, but anything that kills you fast and doesn't affect your skeleton is extremely annoying for people who dig up dead people. Because essentially, if you just have like a little virus or little bacteria, it's gonna go through you, it's gonna dissipate into the soil, we're never going to find it and we're never going to know. Since we've gotten better at like DNA um, and little tiny micro sampling, we can now kind of find some bacterial DNA that's like trapped inside bones so we know that was the thing what done it. So we can find bubonic plague inside bones now. But something like a coronavirus, I mean, I hope we're better at this in 2,000 years. Let's, let's go with I hope we're better at this in 2,000 years. So this is uh, good. Well, we'll get on to uh, something. That, but biology, of course, always very messy. So instead, we're going to go to you, John, now. And uh, this is, uh, I warn you, uh, this question includes quotes from you in The New Scientist uh, from last month as well. So uh, let, let's hope. Yeah, or it might be in the month before. I think it's uh, apparently it's the uh, I like specific questions. This is from an interview from the 16th of June, 2020. Uh, John Butterworth was talking about uh, the Higgs and Standard Model and saying that its health is disgustingly good and we need to find deviations. Where could these deviations come from and what new bits of kit could help with that? OK, good. It's a, quite a broad and on point question. So. I guess even before answering that, you might say, why do we need to find deviations? And the reason for that is that there are big chunks of physics that the standard model doesn't explain. So it's like we don't understand what dark matter is. We don't understand where all the antimatter in the universe went. So those are the reasons that we're, we, and that's not understood in the standard model. So we would like to find 
deviations or things that go wrong that would be a kind of loose thread of the standard model that you can pull out and maybe gain some deeper insight into the rest. So when I say it's disgustingly healthy, that's why I'm kind of disgusted because there's no little, there's no little threads that we can see that are that loose at the moment. Um, the, there are actually some things that may turn into loose threads if we pick at them hard enough. The, actually, uh, an experiment at CERN, which is not my experiment, um, LHCB experiment, has got some weird-looking anomalies in um, some, some rare decays, which may be a sign that, um, that electrons and muons and taus, which are the three kinds of leptons, don't behave the right way. Don't behave, they're expected to behave the same apart from their mass. And it, there are some hints that they're not doing. And then none of these is, is compulsive, um, totally compelling yet, but they're, they're kind of all beginning to point in the same direction. They're like a lot of straws blowing in the wind, but they're all kind of blowing in the same direction. So maybe it actually is a wind that's blowing. Up. And likewise, the thing that broke the standard model, or at least caused it to be modified, is the neutrino. We thought neutrinos had no mass, and we now know they do. But we don't really, well, we don't know what the mass is, and we don't really understand the mechanisms that generate it. It may, that in that case, it may or may not be to do with the Higgs. So I think the short answer is that the lepton sector is interesting, which by leptons, they're the lighter particles. So the electron is the most common one, but neutrinos and muons and tails. And it's in general, it's to do with flavor physics, we call it. It's the different flavor is just the label we give these different particles. And that seems to be where the, that's where the material of the standard model looks raggedest at the moment. And there are experiments coming online, both at CERN and in Japan and in North America, that will give us significantly more data about that. And if we're lucky, then some of that will turn into something concrete that may actually give us a clue to what the bigger, better theory that contains the standard model is. Um, so that's where I am at the moment. But it is very much on the, the speculative, you know, it's the frontier of knowledge. So that, that answer may change in a few months. But that's where I would put my money at the moment. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Now, uh, the next question has got fish in it. So I'm going to ask you, Helen, because obviously we know anything under sea. Uh, I'm, not, it, it's, I'm not entirely sure I understand this question, but that's my own stupidity. This is from Adam. Adam says, how far can electricity travel? E.g., if you put a battery in the sea, can fish feel an electric charge? Okay, so this this actually is interesting. So electrosensing isn't common in the biological world, but uh, there are some things that can do it. Platypus can do it, and sharks can do it. Sharks and rays. So that group of fish, and they are fish, um, can electrosense. The thing that uh, is generally true is that those kind of electric and magnetic fields don't travel very far. They don't exist for a very you 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 don't have to go very far from the original bit before you get away from their influence. So, for example, one thing that people do to repel sharks or to attract them used in different ways is, is to put um, things that have electric currents going through them. In fact, I've had science experiments that if you put them in the ocean, because they've got an alternating electric field, the sharks will come and nose around them and want to know what they are. So they can definitely sense uh, electric fields. It doesn't work if you have something like a battery because effectively the ocean is a conductor, it's full of salt, it's brine. So basically it just connects up the battery um, and the battery will drain very quickly. Um, also it will rust and all other, other things will happen. So, so you don't get, if you just drop a battery in the water, it doesn't generate enough of anything. 
but if you have a constant power source like a living thing so that's why um a lot of these fish these elasma branch fish can uh, sense them it's because living things produce electric fields and if you're a ray and you're scooting over the ocean surface and there's something just in the sediment down here and it moves you can detect it and there's one very other interesting thing of this which is still um the, the science behind it, as far as I can tell, seems to be robust, but no one's quite worked out how they use it yet, is that one of the things um, that happens is it, we know that if you move a conductor through a magnetic field, you get electromagnetic induction. So you can detect uh, a voltage if you if that's what you're doing. And of course, the Earth has a magnetic field and that magnetic field extends into the ocean. So it's thought that there are underwater animals that as they swim through, and sharks are some of these, they swim through that magnetic field, they can sense, because they have conductors inside them, they can sense the direction of the magnetic field and that might help them navigate. So it's a hard thing to test. I don't know all of the details of the way it works. So um, basically, yes, fish can sense electric and magnetic fields some fish not all of them because you need you need you need a little you need a, the right electronic component effectively inside you which is a fluid filled tube um so the sharks and rays can do it and um it but it's not a long range force it's not a long range sensing skill except the ones that might be able to use the Earth's magnetic field to just get a hint of which direction they're pointing in so so the answer is sort of yes and sort of no and john's got his hand up <laughs> Please, John, yes. Yeah, sorry, I just wanted to add a slightly possibly confusing and contrarian thing, is that actually light is an oscillating electric field. So insofar as fish can see over long distances, they can. I mean, actually, the ocean attenuates light as well eventually, right? But, but um, it's not really what the question was asking, but it's maybe worth mentioning that light is actually an oscillating electric field. So that bit of electric fields, many animals sense, including us. Brilliant. Um, uh, we've got a question now. We're going to move straight on to diet. And uh, I wish everyone else could see this. Unfortunately, I can see everyone, whereas you at home can only see uh, whoever's talking. And if only you knew that in between answering questions, uh, John is currently enjoying a lovely orange lollipop, which he's being really careful. I saw him listing. He's having one of Ice Kitchen's lollipops. And I saw him listening to Helen's answer. And he, I could see him go... I reckon she's got at least three more sentences. I can have another bite. We will try and catch him out with his lolly shame a little bit later on. Um, now, this is uh, this question from uh, Carl White, and uh, I'll give you this to you, Brenner. This is um, the question: Is what are the benefits of the paleo diet? Uh, I'm baiting a little bit, but I still see so much nonsense about it online. So, tell tell everyone a little bit the paleo diet, what it is, and and then the benefits. Right. So paleo diet, um, I, I'm going to start off with saying it's pretty much the bugbear of anyone who works on paleolithic archaeology. Um, so the paleo diet is the idea that we are not adapted to eat certain foods, that things that um, we probably develop later, like pot noodle, um, are not in fact sort of our evolutionary sort of target. And that a lot of diseases and health problems could be fixed if we just went back to eating what our cave people ancestors ate. Um, so quick cut to John eating his lolly. Ah, oh, you missed it wasn't it. fast it. enough. He missed it. Damn. I'm not ashamed. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it turns out, so the, the thing with the paleo, so the real paleo diet is not starving to death. That is literally all it is. That is the actual definition of paleo diet. Congratulations. You lived and reproduced. Well done. 
Um, so, so I mean, actual, you know, people in the far distant past, hunter-gatherers, they ate porcupine, they ate turtles, they ate anything they could. I mean, we have, uh, so we have ethnographic evidence from modern hunter-gatherers that show their diet, like, 15% of their calories come from honey. Like, we are, we are not a, a sort of um, abstemious species. So the thing with paleo diet, it's like, if it makes you feel good and you can afford it and you can still not get scurvy or um, basically what's called rabbit starvation from only eating lean meat, you know, if you can get enough nutrients in you, great, do it. But it's, it's not a real thing, the paleo diet thing. We have evolved to eat things and live. I mean, milk eating. A lot of people can't have milk, don't digest it well, but a lot of people can because it turns out it's really super useful in a lot of evolutionary scenarios to not die. And eating milk is one of those things that helped us do that. So, I mean, the ability to eat milk has evolved separately like three times in the human species. Like it's just, it's turned out to be really useful. And um, if you were not, you know, eating a fruit popsicle and eating an ice cream cone, then we could have gone to John to demonstrate that, but sadly, no. But it's, I mean, the it's, diet it's, industry is such a bizarre one, isn't it, that we, we people keep falling for it because it is really simple. And I know most of us fail on this uh, if, if we have this, which is just eat less crap. If you, if you just notice that you have, if your vegetable bin is going high very, very quickly, you go, oh, that's good. That must mean that I'm eating a lot of vegetables because there's a lot of carrot tops in there and there's all those different things. And that's it really, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's a reasonably simple thing. Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, basically anything that keeps you from not dying. And I mean, really, and, I mean, really scurvy rickets is something that's actually coming back in the human you know, species. Though we get more and more cases of rickets, even in you know, hyper-modern, well-fed uh populations and yeah so you know you try and get your vitamins and nutrients it's pretty much very difficult to starve to death there's a um, lot of vitamin c in here i think yeah that's very much <laughs> they've been available on the bounty that never have been a mutiny it's no, as simple no, as that no scurvy yeah. news i hope you i hope you're brushing your teeth afterwards or you're gonna end up like robin though so yeah, yeah. during during um the uh during the show that's what we need this is uh, another diet based question i'll start i don't know who's going to be the best on this one so i'll start with you helen this is from spiderfish who wants to know can i burn more calories by thinking intensely rather than not and this is something that always interests me which is we're told how many calories are burnt by and i know a lot you know there are people who seem to think almost nothing whereas a lot of people i know really concentrating on a lot of ideas reading a lot researching a lot we should surely be able to see some sense of, of benefit from that, from, from their physical appearance. So the caveat here, I guess, is that none of us are neuroscientists. It, we know that the brain is a very energy intensive organism. But the thing is, it's doing quite a lot of things anyway. So brain neurons are firing all the time, whether you are consciously thinking or not. Quite a lot of your brain is not involved in conscious stuff, right? It's busy keeping you alive. It's the bits on the outside that do the conscious bit. So uh, this is this is very much me not being a neuroscientist, but my understanding is that, first of all, your brain is doing a lot of things all of the time. Whether or not you think you're thinking, it's very busy in there. And so even if you did have a bit of extra blood flow because you were thinking about something, that's like a tiny, it's, it's a relatively small amount around the outside. Um, but other than that, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But I think just keeping it ticking over normally is probably where most of the calories um you know, because your brain still uses calories when you sleep, for example, because it's organizing things and doing things and doing all this stuff when you're subconscious, not conscious. So so I suspect not. Um, I would recommend going for a walk instead. 
See, that's a pity, is it? Because I like that. People, you know, the end of Christmas always going, do you know what happens? Every January, I join the library and then about three months in. But of course, the great things about libraries are they are free. So you don't have to unlike a gym. And so support your local library uh, whenever you can. in this. But if you're, you can think while you exercise. That's, that's the other thing. I mean, I do a lot of sport, clearly, but it is very, you know, if you do a lot of sport, it's good for you in lots of ways. And you have ideas when you're out exercising because your brain's you know not thinking about other conscious things and so you win both ways if you exercise i think that's that's a good thing even in the yeah. heat maybe go in the morning when it's cool and try yeah try yeah try and think thoughts about uh, the nature of the universe and the curvature of space time uh while doing your kettlebells and uh, everything will turn out well this is from uh klaus kinski not that one i presume not that one otherwise we're going to be breaking i think the second law of thermodynamics by getting a message from the late klaus kinski but uh this is has modern i'll throw this to you john has modern science really not figured out a way to deny Anton Lavoisier's law of conservation of mass. Can we really not yet turn somethingness into absolute nothingness? Um, well, I guess that the way is, the answer is yes and no. Yes, we can, the Lavoisier's law, yes, we can violate conservation of mass. Mass is not a conserved quantity. On the other hand, we cannot turn somethingness into nothingness. So you can annihilate matter and antimatter, or you can fission a nucleus or fuse nuclei and what you end up with weighs less than what you started with or more than what you started with. So you can, mass is not conserved. It's conserved in chemical reactions to a very good approximation, although actually that is an approximation as well. Um, because we actually know the thing that is conserved is energy and mass is actually a form of energy. So you can shift your energy around just the same way that you can shift potential energy into kinetic energy by, you know, when something falls and it, it loses potential energy and picks up speed, which is kinetic energy. When you undergo a, 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 a reaction, let's say a nuclear fission, or um, you can break a heavy nucleus up into smaller nuclei, and the sum of the mass of the smaller nuclei is less than the mass of the initial nucleus, so you've liberated some energy, which typically would be kinetic energy of the fragments that are flying away. So you don't conserve mass. But... Even if you take some antimatter and some matter and annihilate it, you do still conserve energy. And typically, if so, I mentioned the electron positron collider before, that was colliding matter and antimatter, electrons and their antiparticles. It was annihilating them, but it was very far from just vanishing them away. Um, so when you annihilate them, all the energy that was in their mass and the energy that was in their kinetic energy, in fact, in this case, was available to create new particles. And, and it, that's what it did. And often they're photons, so they're, they're not what you say matter particles. They have no mass themselves, but they still have energy and they're still there. So we don't. We know how to make. We know how to transmute elements. We know how to destroy and create mass, but we never turn something into nothing because we're always conserving energy. We can never get rid of the energy. Thank you, thank you, John. This is uh, no, this is uh, for you, Brenner. This is uh, we need a kind of statistic here, which is basically uh, on how often, when you're digging, does something that looks like it's going to be wonderful end up just turning out to be another bit of old tat? And then I wonder about how much how your eye and your understanding of objects manages to find itself so eventually you go, oh, two years ago, I'd have seen that and thought, I found, no, I haven't. And how much you go, you are ready, or whether that's just a kind of level of uh, archaeopessimism. Uh, well, yeah, no, I'd say that pretty much like every other branch of scientific inquiry, it's a question of managed expectations. Um, but the thing is, you, you, you learn to stop worrying and love the crap. Um, 
you you just decide that the old tat is just as interesting, um, which will take you much much farther. So it turns out, um, you know, the question I always get asked is, what's the most interesting thing you've ever found? And what people mean is, what's the coolest fanciest object? In which case, it is a small amulet of a goddess with a fish for a hat, which was fascinating, and I found uh, on the body of a thirteen-year-old-ish girl in uh, outside the pyramids of Egypt. So that's neat, but. Most of my time is actually spent um, doing things like staring very intently at the ground for little tiny, smaller than my fingernail, bits of obsidian, which are tedious and horrible and really difficult to see. But if you find enough of them and you carefully map them and you carefully plot them on a big landscape, you can actually see where little groups of Cretan hunters were charging around on this stupid abandoned island trying to hunt these goats that they kind of seeded the island with. 5,000 years ago. And that's cool. So uh, you, you, you start changing your idea about what cool is. The way, the way you it, described your discovery in Egypt, you made it sound more like you were street thieving off a poor child <laughs> tourist rather than actually doing archaeology. Um, you know, uh, isn't it that waste is actually up. really interesting in archaeology? So on the Thames, for example, by Greenwich, um, people built that on rubbish. Like they used actual waste from London to build out the bank in order to put a building there. And then they basically made it out of rubbish. And the archaeologists love it because it's kind of washing out into the Thames as time goes on. But it's 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 not quite as organised as the teeth. But the waste tells you the stories. Um, and yet they used it as a building material. They were reusing their waste. So it wasn't useless even to them at the time. Um, yeah. And it's still carrying its story with it. And all of our, all of our sort of Sort of gardens here in London or you know the parks and stuff they're all built on big masses of sort of landfill that's been moved around so they're you know bits of clay pipe you know the cigarette butts of the Victorian era yay bits of broken glass brick everything and if you pile all that up and you actually get someone to sift through it you know it tells a whole story that's that's what we're supposed to be doing at least I think that's generally what we get paid for John's, John's uh, quite correct. Uh, Calvin and Hobbes, which, as we okay. know, is uh, if, if it's only one uh, philosopher you're ever going to read, then read Bill Watterson, uh, because Calvin and Hobbes is always I mean, it's still one of my favorite things that scientific progress goes boink. Uh, I think is if you're going to get a tattoo, John, please get that tattoo. Uh, if you haven't got it already, of course. Um, <laughs> I couldn't this, uh, let's see. Uh, right. This one is uh, because you were in Greenwich a moment ago, Helen. This is uh, I suppose it's more galleon than clipper based. Uh, but John would like to know, is it possible that increasing as acidification of the oceans could corrode sunken Spanish treasure? And he also says, if you know where it is, could you uh, not broadcast it, but message him? Um, we generally, in general, people are very people close-lipped close about where treasure might be. There is a genuine major problem with treasure hunters in the ocean because it's much harder to spot what people are up to. You know, if a boat's just hanging around in an area for a while and you don't know there's a site or a shipwreck underneath it, there, there really is a problem there. Um, so... Uh, Corrosion, right. So the first thing about ocean acidification is that it isn't making the ocean acid, it's making it less alkaline. So this is the, the partner of global of climate change that no one really talks about as much as I would like, which is if you put more carbon dioxide up into the atmosphere, quite a lot of it ends up in the ocean. The ocean's doing an enormous favour, but it what it does, it changes the chemistry of the ocean. So the, the ocean would normally be 8.1, or it was 100 years ago, 
now it's 8.05 so it's become more alkaline so it's not acid yet and frankly if it does become acid we have so many other problems <laughs> that we are not going to be treasure hunting at all um, but that tiny change in ph which is reasonably evenly distributed over the, the surface waters of the ocean um makes it it seems to the risk is it makes it a bit harder for calcium based things to live and the problem is that they are the base of the food the equivalent of plants on land um come in two forms one's calcium based one's silica based and it and if you have a less alkaline environment it makes it harder for those to grow so basically by the time you've got to the point where you might potentially dissolve anything that came out of a spanish galleon you've already killed off at least half of the entire ocean food chain and that produces at least half of all the oxygen that we breathe so um and actually it happens naturally in some places where there are underwater volcanoes so because they produce carbon dioxide there are places in the mediterranean for example where you get a little sort of not a full-on volcano but it's it's the same geological structure it's producing carbon dioxide and so you get a localized region of slightly more acid uh, less alkaline water and even then i don't think it's really acid rivers are a bit different this actually goes on for a while but so basically the short answer is i wouldn't hang around to get to that point because we'll have so many other problems that no one's going to be looking at the archaeology even brenner won't be enthusiastic enough to be looking at the archaeology if we get to that point and no i'm really sorry i don't know where any spanish galleons are but again it's actually the same with ships you know most of the really interesting and valuable stuff isn't the gold everyone's focused the treasure hunters are focused on the gold the archaeologists are after the stories and that's why the treasure hunters are really annoying to the archaeologists because they just pull things apart until they find the gold bits and in the process you lose where everything was so um don't go treasure hunting underwater that's a serious thing I'm really sorry that it's boring but please don't do it it, it is also it is also prosecutable in almost every country so I, I, i'd add that not recommended overall a, a jolly uh, question became uh, increasingly uh, bleak uh, that's good. Um, that's, what, that's what science is all about. It's, it's, science, so. if, if science is about, it's, it's why it's making me have so hard to, it's, for me to write this book, which is saying that the scientific picture uh, doesn't add any kind of bleakness into our finite existence. But don't worry, you're all battling very hard to prove me wrong. Uh, this is uh, the next question. I like this question. This is, uh, John, this is for you. This is the Large Hadron Collider, uh, which is basically, is there a build-up inside the LHC of things like proton dust or small piles of neutrinos and other atomic detritus it's a rather beautiful image there yeah no, i like that um, um so not neutrinos because they're they're so light they travel as fast as light and they go through anything so they they just zoom away as soon as we make them and protons have electric charge so they're quite easy to pull up the magnets can manipulate them and get rid of them what what the nearest thing to that i can think of actually is neut neutrons uh, kind of tricky so the, and neutrons, especially slow neutrons, actually, are quite nasty for things like your, your electronics. And we have very sensitive detectors there made of silicon and stuff. And it turns out neutrons do get produced quite often in these big collisions. Um, it's often secondaries, not in the primary collision, but just as particles bash through everything around them. And they behave like a gas. So you essentially have a gas of neutrons that can kind of float around inside the LHC. And it will it will hang around quite most of the things. You turn the LHC off, and within within tiny fractions of a second, nothing else is happening. But this gas of neutrons is still floating around. And for a while, I was working on uh, designing a detector that would be 450 meters away from from the collision point, 
And we were wondering what the particle backgrounds might be, you know, what stuff it would see as secondaries from the collisions. And pretty much the only thing that got there was this diffusion of this gas of neutrons down the beam pipe, which was kind of annoying. Uh, but also quite, quite, I don't know, the idea of a gas of neutrons I quite like. They also decay after about nine minutes, if I remember rightly. So they, they don't live forever, but they're, they're, the, they're the longest lived bit of particle rubbish that hangs around, I guess. Particle rubbish. Oh, rubbish. That's a lovely... Uh... I love the idea of someone having a hoover. I mean, yeah. I know that's not quite how it works, but a neutron hoover. Uh, let's, oh, you know, it's like the, the cleaner comes around. Get out. We've got to hoover under the desks because yeah. uh, the neutrons are getting out of control. Well, that's what the carbon rods are in a reactor. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we tend to keep the cleaners out and just let the neutro neutrons decay and then the cleaners can go in when they've gone. <laughs> and if you would like, there's a lovely illustration of coming on having miniaturized cleaners in the excellent uh, Viz comic strip, Tiny Cox. Uh, if you've not seen it, it's a uh, Brian Cox-based uh, spoof. Uh, I have to say that Viz do some oh. of the funniest Brian Cox uh, cartoon spoofs. I keep telling him to buy them, buy the original artwork. They are absolutely fantastic, uh, both incredibly childish, but from a childishness that can only come from a level of understanding. It's brilliant. Uh, this is, uh, by the way, John, just to warn you, someone wants uh, to know exactly what dark matter is, so just stop preparing yourself but on the plus side no dark energy so uh i know that's not right i know we're going into a totally different scale for you but that might if, with luck i'm going to find enough questions that we'll never actually get there um this is uh, helen what what makes noise this is what angela would like to know uh as in when i clap my hands why is there a sound is it atoms banging together or is that like when my mum used to tell me that thunder is clouds bumping together Clapping is quite interesting because you generate a mini, sh a mini shock, which is not what most people think of when they think of clapping because we associate shock with you know big explosions and stuff. In general, what generates sound is anything that moves air. Uh, and it can, obviously sound can travel in liquids and solids as well. Basically, if you move it really quickly um, because of the way matter works, after a while it becomes waves uh, and then you can detect those you can detect that vibration so what your ears are doing is detecting the sound the air doing this in the case of a clap I'm, I'm not i'm a bit nervous to do one directly above my microphone but um what happens and you can actually see this there's a very clever kind of imaging called schlieren imaging which lets you use um mirrors to see density changes in air so if you clap can you just sorry can I just, how would you because because how does that so, so people want to look that up afterwards what's that imaging called what's the actual Schlieren. It's S C H L E L I E R E N. Okay, cool. Uh, and it's a way of it's that you get these. It's really fiddly to set up, but you get these beautiful images of shock coming out. And the reason you see the shock is that there's a density change. You know, so air does. You know, we think of glass having a refractive index. That's why we put it in glasses. But actually, air has a refractive index as well. It's just only a tiny bit above one. Oh. Well, and aren't these the same images that they've used to show how masks work, actually? When you see that, is that the same thing? Uh, it can be used for that, yes. So yeah. you can see density changes, yeah. But if yeah. you use that for the clap, so, yeah, you can... You can I'm not sure whether it's, or they're all that. That's why I'm hesitating. Yeah. Um, but if you use it for a clap, what you see is that, basically, as you cup, you cup your palm ever so slightly, and as the two cups come together... Um, air is basically forced out through a tiny gap and it rams into the air around it and that pushes on the air and that's what travels out. And the reason the clap sounds really sharp is that basically it's it, the density change is so great. It's basically like a hard wall 
hitting the air on the outside. And the reason that some claps don't work very well is that if you let air escape out of other gaps, so in that sort of that kind of thing right if you let the air escape if you, you sh your shape the shape of your hands lets the air escape in too many places um you don't get a shock so you don't get that sharp noise uh that's the, that's the thing that makes it a sharp noise rather than just a loud thing and it's a weak shock but but that's the that's distinction and on schlieren imaging you see really clear this little front coming out that spreads away and then it sort of becomes normal sound and the, the density variations um change so so yeah so it, but basically the world is a musical instrument i mean everything around you is a musical instrument that makes a noise depending on its structure and all you have to do to hear the structure of something is to basically it's like um a hammer hitting a bell you just need to apply something that that makes the structure move and in the way it moves gives away what it's made of and what shape it is and how heavy it is how much mass it has um, and that's what you hear. So, so sound is very specifically hearing structure. And there is an ice cream van. I know. I was just saying how annoyed John is because John already, already had his orange lolly. He could have had another one now, couldn't he? Too late, John. We're going to have a Mivy instead. Bad but, luck. <laughs> but what we, what you're hearing is is a physical structure inside the ice cream van. Although now they tend to be electronic. It's an it's electronics mimicking a structure. But it's still you're hearing a structure. You're hearing it do something. It is. There is something I, I never that moment when you sometimes think about what is required when you're hearing music, for instance, that if you are if you're tuning into an old fashioned radio and you think there's radio waves, there, they're all around me now that all we need to find is the receiver. And then once I place the receiver, then I have those vibrations going through there, which suddenly make, you know, variations on a theme by Thomas Tallis, uh, by Vaughan Williams, or whatever. All of those bits, when you stop and you start trying to see how you sense the world and all those possibilities. It, and there's something. Yeah, well, I was, well, I was just gonna add. There's another. Yeah, there's, there's another. A, there's another really interesting, just everyday example. Because the, the one thing is generating the sound, and the other thing is that some things amplify it. And just as one example, so the wheel of a car um, comes up like this, and there's noise generated down here. And this shape, the road there, and the curve of that—that's like the horn of a trumpet or the horn of an old gramophone. And so the amount of sound that's made down here isn't actually that much that we could hear. But that horn shape amplifies it so cars are actually allowed the tire noise is louder directly in front and directly behind because this horn shape amplifies the sound that you get so um sorry i interrupted your musings about radio no, no, there, were, there, were, there was there were every point there was, uh, could, as well but, but uh, that, that was all made to be interrupted the uh now uh john by the way good news i'm not going to force you into cosmology we've had a uh, a, a quantum-based question so you can relax now in terms of looking up dark matter on wikipedia um but before we go any further the is, uh, with Brenna, we've got um, a leprosy-based question. Um, this oh. is know about, which is um, why is leprosy considered the poster child of diseases amongst archaeologists? Now, I oh, we we love a bit. Of, we we love a bit of leprosy. Love it. Um, so leprosy takes so long to kill you. I mean, just so long. The vast amounts of uh, possibly not historically, but probably also historically, most people who die with leprosy died of something else. Leprosy is a disease that sort of gets into your bones. It starts cutting off essentially circulation. You get something called tissue necrosis, which is interesting, but I don't recommend it. Um, your nerves uh, basically die off. Um, you lose feeling in your feet and hands. You start snagging them on things and getting little infections and then those get into the skin and yeah so your feet and your fingers and various other extremities 
they kind of start falling off. Leprosy. That is something we can see in the skeleton. So there are very characteristic changes that have to do with basically how that bone um, in your little in the tips of your toes and your fingers starts getting eaten away, which allows us, the diggers, to identify leprosy as the actual disease that you suffered from. What we're not necessarily doing is finding out what killed you. So most people who die uh, with leprosy today actually die of tuberculosis, um, which it turns out is the same bacterium sort of family. And um, one of the interesting things that people think actually is that one of the reasons we don't see as much leprosy as we do today, uh, or as today as we did in say the 14th century when it was all the rage, um, is that being exposed to tuberculosis might provide some sort of slight cross immunity. So the, the sort of party that tuberculosis created when it sort of crashed across the globe might have actually been a little bit protective against leprosy. A sort of jury is still kind of out on that. But, um, you know, you should basically be thankful that something that kills you quickly and horribly uh, has stopped you from dying a long, slow, possibly not quite death. Yeah, but your enthusiasm for is is slightly worrying. I have to say, like what you re- that question at the start about the archaeologists of the future. Basically, uh, they have to hope that. I mean, we don't want to know whether COVID kills you slowly. Or, we don't know yet what the long term consequences are. But um, your your it was really worrying how enthusiastic you were about lingering. This this is professional hazard. So I mean, the problem is is that obviously we want evidence. We want evidence of what's happening in the past. And if it doesn't affect something that comes down the line, then we reach, you know, we never have the evidence. So you have all these horrible sort of things where like, um, you know, probably there's all sorts of stuff going on in the past that we just don't know about because they built it out of wood or they made it out of skin and it oh, all disintegrated. Disdain. Those rubbish people who made things out of Organic, recyclable, completely sustainable lifestyles. How dare they? How dare they? How dare they? How dare they? It's really inconvenient. Is it just on sustainability? Should the aim of a sustainable society be to leave no trace that following generations can find? Because presumably, if almost by definition, if you leave anything behind, you're not being completely sustainable. So, well, if, you, so well, if you, yeah, I mean, if you if you look at any case. major European city, the thing like after the sort of um, basically after pottery is invented, it's all downhill. There is rubbish everywhere. Anywhere humans have been, they have trashed the place for thousands of years with just bits of ceramic everywhere. And, you know, we've been doing, we've, the Anthropocene has been going on for some time. So there's, there's kind of a strong argument to make that um, we used to sort of not mess up the environment nearly as much. But, uh, you know, then we wouldn't have invented uh, things like CERN, so... Obviously, well, get away from the grotesque world of biology to the much uh, more lovely uh, world of, of, of physics with uh, the live question from Roger. By the way, the, li- the other live question we had quite a few of, uh, the answer is his name is Baloo. There we go. And uh, But what Roger would like to know is, what is it, the thing about light not experiencing time at all? So... This is something very, I mean, this is an interesting, I think we talked about this before, where when I was talking to, on a slightly different thing, but about that that point where something doesn't experience time, that that first 10 to the minus 37 of the existence of the universe, when we say 10 to the minus 37 of a second, actually saying a second doesn't kind of count because it may well be a period of time without time, which is kind of crazy, you know, that, that, that. So go off in any direction you wish with this. Emit yourself in any way. Right. <laughs> so um, I think, 
the issue with this is is the word experience, because light is not a form of matter. Light is is um, an oscillation. It's a quantum of electromagnetic um, energy. So it's it's an as I mentioned before when we were talking about underwater sensing, it's a it's an oscillation in electromagnetic fields, and it's the quantized version of that is is a photon. Okay. That may sound like a pedantic place to start, but actually that means because it's not matter, you can't have any structure. And because you can't have any structure, it's very hard to talk about a world made of photons or a, an organism that could actually experience traveling at a photon's speed. So the idea of experiencing time from the point of view of a photon is not something, I don't mean that we can't do it, I mean that you couldn't really build a clock out of photons either in that way, because there'd be no structure. But it's true to say that that the um, from the point of view of a photon, in the sense that that has any meaning, all all points on its path are at the same time and simultaneous. So the way the the way the relativistic equations of, of the Newtonian mechanics is a kind of low low energy low speed approximation of the way they are, they they dictate that. At normal speeds, for instance, and the, and the momentum is mass times velocity. As you approach the speed of light, there's a gamma factor that you start to notice, which is almost one when you're miles away from the speed of light. But as you get to the speed of light, this gamma factor grows and grows. So the beams we have at CERN have a huge momentum, which is much more than the mass of a proton times the speed of light. And the, but the beams are traveling at practically the speed of light, almost the speed of light. So the kind of equations you learn in physics up to, up to A-level, in fact, don't apply once you get to very high. Um, they're very good approximations in everyday life, but once you get to speeds approaching the speed of light, they don't apply. That gamma factor, you still with me? <laughs> Sorry. But that, that gamma factor has got a 1 over, one, 1 over C minus V in it, basically. So as C and V, C is the speed of light, V is the speed of the thing, as they approach each other, that one over this number becomes one over zero, becomes infinite. Okay, and that means you've got essentially a singularity in the equations. That's where the photons live. And the, the net result of that whole thing is that anything that has any mass cannot travel at the speed of light or faster. But less well known is actually that anything that has zero mass has to travel at the speed of light. It's not just light. If there was anything else that has zero mass, if neutrinos had zero mass, they would also have to travel at the speed of light, which is what we thought was the case until recently. So that singularity, that point, it's like being on a, it, it's, time does stop at that singularity, yes. So the phot photons do not experience time in any meaningful sense. They don't experience anything in any meaningful sense, but all points on a photon's path are at the same time from the point of view of the photon. And thus, they never experienced nostalgia, ah, the sadness of light. So um, thank you very much, John. Thank you very much, everyone. We, we had a question as well, which we're not going to get to this time. We've had a lot of stuff now on the live uh, question as well about sound and about clapping. And so we're going to do, we'll do a, a, a Sunday Science Q&A, which will just be uh, about sound. We'll do that in the next few weeks. Uh, and uh, what are you doing? She's doing more of this magic, the creation of sound. through. Anyway, so uh, and next week, as I said, we're going to be doing uh, it's astrophysics next week. Uh, with uh, uh, Katie Mack and Jen Gupta and, uh, and and Helen will of course be back again and I will also uh, quickly mention uh, we, we don't like to bang on about too much but if you can support us by 
via Patreon or uh, by giving something in the tip jar, uh, it's kind of reaching the stage where it would be very, very useful to us. And uh, I hope you're enjoying all the stuff that we do. We try and make as many shows as possible. And we have lovely people coming on. And I should also say all this kind of, we, we've been doing this now since uh, the Sunday Science Q&A, since lockdown began. And uh, we've got a huge archive as well. They're all still up. You can listen to them in audio version or you can watch them on YouTube uh, with Brian Green and Ethan Melissa and uh, Alice Roberts and, and Brian Cox and lots of other people. All of those Q&As are still up as well as pretty much all of the other things that we've been making. So if you can support uh, this uh, pointless endeavour, uh, then uh, please do, uh, because it might even have some point to it underneath it all. You never know. Um, John, quick question, by the way, from someone. Uh, when I first saw the science Q&A was coming up, I thought it said John Shuttleworth. They're interested to know how often you, John Butterworth, are booked. And then they're a little bit annoyed that you haven't actually turned up with uh, an organ and a selection of songs about the snake pass. Not happened yet, but I live in hope. Okay, then. Well, I hope that I hope that cock up happens at some point because I think John Shuttleworth will also have a very interesting take on the Large Hadron Collider as well. Um, so, thanks again. Thanks very much to Trent Burton who produces this. I said we're back next week. Uh, please try and support this stuff. Uh, go and look at all of uh, of, of the the people's work that I mentioned uh, before. Uh, Brenner's latest book, Helen's latest book, and John's latest book. And uh, we will be back in the week with Show and Tell with Jay Wilgoose. And there's uh, some more book shambles uh, coming up as well. I think next week we have the person who is currently or they might be not anymore but was uh top of the new york times bestseller list go to our website and find out who i'm talking about uh there's lots of other stuff at the website as well of things uh, that we've got coming up and things that we have done bye-bye thank you very much for listening support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles check out all the other stuff over at cosmic follow us on twitter at cosmic shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now.